You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 14th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, 200 million voters go to the polls in Indonesia. We look at a country once a vibrant democracy as it uses its election to judge Joko Widodo's legacy. Also coming up, a key hurdle in securing US funding for Ukraine is overcome as a bill passes the Senate. But its journey through the House will be much tougher. What could lie ahead? We look at the day's papers, plus examine how or if a deal between the European Union and South American trade group Mercosur could actually happen. And she's incredibly innovative. Her practice is incredibly ahead of its time. We had to take modern for the UK's largest exhibition in history about Yoko Ono. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The Democratic former congressman Tom Swartzi has won a special U.S. House of Representatives election in New York. The seat became available after the House expelled the Republican George Santos. South Africa has made an urgent request to the International Court of Justice to consider whether Israel's plans for a full-scale military offensive in Rafah requires extra protection for Palestinians. And Paris's famous booksellers have won the right to remain by the River Seine during this summer's election. Olympic Games. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, it is 10 years since Joko Widodo, or Jokowi, won Indonesia's presidential election and swept to power on a promise of prosperity and reform. To a greater extent, Jokowi's legacy is one of progress. The economy has grown yearly by an average of 5%. There are new railways, new roads, and the country tried during its tenure as G20 chief in 2022 to place itself as a location for international negotiations. But earlier this month, Jokowi endorsed a potential successor among the presidential candidates, Prabowo Subianto, a former general with a terrible human rights record. And Mr Prabowo's running mate also happens to be Jokowi's son. So to discuss this and the context is Jackie Baker, Principal Fellow at Murdoch University's Indo-Pacific Research Centre. A very good morning to you, Jackie. Hi, good morning, Emma. Um, Now let's just place this in context. This election is for the third biggest democracy in, on, on earth. This is the world's biggest single-day election, isn't it, with almost 260,000 candidates alone. That's correct. So Indonesia has recently transitioned over to what's known as simultaneous elections. And that on that, also on one day, Indonesia votes in its president, its national legislature, its regional legislature, its provincial legislatures, and its its regency-level legislatures. So it is a massive day, and there are something like 2,500 different types of ballots that need to be printed and distributed and sent to the right areas. And just the focus at the moment is um, very much a referendum on Joko Widodo's legacy, isn't it? I mean, the world watched as he did his best to transform the country over the process of a decade. Certainly, people are talking about it as a referendum on Joko Widodo, who has been a pretty interesting and transformative 
president. Indonesia is quite used to having presidents with military backgrounds, while Joko Widodo was a kind of uh, political system upset in that he came through um, the 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 kind of winds of the of the reformasi movement of the democratization movement he he's worked his way up as from a sort of town mayor to president and those kinds of uh, direct elected positions so electing your mayor electing your governor these are all the winds of of democracy so in many ways joko widodo is like a product of indonesia's reformasi movement but if we call it a referendum on jokowi i guess in some ways, that's because Jokowi has made it a referendum about himself. He has really positioned himself as kingmaker of this election, and he wants to continue to govern through the next presidential election. He even talked about having a third term, which is a big no-no um, in the post-Reformasi period. So he's really struggled and strategized to find new ways to govern. And this way, um, by... Uh, sort of backing a, a presidential pair has been his landed upon strategy. So it's a referendum on Jokowi, but it's one that he has insisted on having. Tell us a little bit more about um, the man he has almost sort of anointed as, as his successor. I mean, Prabowo Subianto is a former general, as I said a little bit earlier on, with a terrible human rights record. What, what was it that made Jokowi decide that he was the one that he wanted to be his successor? Because if Jokowi... Uh, gives you his blessing, then the likelihood is is that you're going to win. That's correct, because Jokowi's own um, popularity re- popularity rankings are somewhere in, in sort of stratospheric 80% level. So whoever he endorses is who uh, will probably become president. Prabowo Subianto, though, was a very unlikely successor to the Jokowi crown. They faced off in 2014 and 2019 in really bitterly, Uh, contested and polarising elections. Um, It was an absolute um, uh, face-off in those elections. So in some ways it's gone from being sort of the worst enemies to now a a kind of pair in governing. Um, So uh, Prabowo Subianto's own background is extremely murky. Um, Many people talk about the fact that he has run for president now three times. Uh, He also ran for vice president and tried to get himself on the ballot in 2004. But I think we can um, track his interest in becoming president well beyond, well before that. This is a man who married the daughter of the dictator, probably with presidential aspirations back then. He he put himself in the most... um, powerful and mysterious elements of the military and the special forces. He served in East Timor. And in 1998, when there was a popular revolution against the dictator, Prabol Subianto was rumoured to um, be considering a coup. He also disappeared numerous activists in that time. So Prabol's own aspirations for president go way, way, way back, probably somewhere in the in the vicinity of 50 to 40 years. This is a man who believes he's deeply entitled to the president. And this is a man who knows, unlike any other candidate before him, how to wield coercion um, and the dark arts of military power to um, for his own interests. Why, therefore, would, you know, given that context, would Jokowi wish for him to be the next uh, leader of Indonesia? That's a great question. Uh, Prabowo has um, 
in many ways over the last five years, proved himself to be a very loyal and subservient ally to Jokowi. He has been betting the field in order to make it up to Jokowi. And Jokowi's own relationships with his own party, his own nominating party, who, sh who should have been um, the sort of so source of his heir, they were very fractured and they were never very comfortable. And many of the big compromises that Jacoby has had to make over his vision have been with that party. So I guess when the opportunity arose and Jacoby knew that once if he continued to um, support the, the heir nominated by his party, that his vision would continue to be compromised, he started to field the the um started to field for a new candidate and Prabowo Subianto, who had been had been waiting in the wings. So in many ways, this is going to be an awkward a partnership once Prabowo is in presidency, but I think it is one that Prabowo and Jokowi have been sort of grooming each other for for the last year. What does it mean for Indonesians who will be going, all 200 million of them going to the polls today, um, knowing that this is probably where their future lies, but also having enjoyed reasonably good growth and quite a lot of um, investment by Jokowi and also Jokowi's ability to, to make Indonesia stand taller than perhaps some people might imagine it would be able to do on the global stage, to, to have this now become uh, the prospect of, of the future? It's a really good question. And in Indonesians, I think, have fought hard for their democracy. They've sacrificed a lot for their democracy. They love their democracy. They turn out at rates somewhere in, in the excess of 80%. Even local elections get rates, turnout rates of 60 to 70%. Indonesians love to vote. And I guess it's the greatest paradox that they are, that the front runner for the president's presidency is a person who is highly dubious about democracy, who has deeply authoritarian tendencies, who has articulated that democracy has gone too far, and whose party has been advocating an agenda to roll back uh, core electoral wins like decentralised democracy, like voting in those local mayors and governors, the very path that Jokowi made it to president. So it's a paradox, but it's, I think, one that's partially explained by Prabowo's own makeover as a centrist, as a friendly, cuddly uncle, by the endorsement of Jokowi, and by the willingness of the Prabowo-Jokowi coalition to use all of the resources and authorities of the state to throw it at the campaign. So there's been a lot of discussion about whether this campaign has really been run uh, in the most free and fair way possible. Uh, and I think there's, there are clearly electoral violations in the running of this campaign. The counting starts in about an hour, so we'll, we'll find out within the next uh, 12 to, to 14 hours, or at least in the next 24 hours, but what's, what's what. But we began by talking about Jokowi's legacy internationally as well as not just domestically and, and, and the way that he's... Uh, steered the country between America and China, um, navigated the G20 presidency very skillfully in 2022, offering um, a place for discussions to take place to try and bring about peace in Ukraine. Um, what does the future lie? How does the future lie for, for Indonesia in the hands of someone else? It's a really important question, and especially if that someone else is Prabowo Subianto, um, who has shown a lot of distaste for multilateral uh, organisations, who himself 
doesn't really have the temperament for coordination and cooperation. So there's been a lot of discussion in the last few days about what kind, what will foreign policy look like under Prabowo Subianto. On one camp, I think there's a group of people that say, look, it's not going to change very much. Indonesia is non-aligned. Indonesia will continue to accept um, funding from China, Korea, um, in order to drive forward their infrastructure. That's not going to change. Um, and also the kind of cohort of the coalition of elites that, that tend to surround the presidential um, government tends to be want things to look the same right? Tens things, and that in itself will be a check on Prabowo. At the same time, Prabowo probably fancies himself um, as a person who can um, wing it vis-a-vis -vis foreign policy, who sees himself as an expert in foreign policy and certainly military strategy. He has talked uh, quite extensively about um, increasing defence spending, about increasing the role of the military, I think that the answer is probably somewhere in in between. I think Prabowo himself uh, will have strong ideas about foreign policy. They will be uh, curtailed somewhat by that ruling coalition. But at the same time, what we don't know is what happens if there's some kind of exogenous shock, like uh, some kind of military action in the South China Sea, like uh, contestation like very tense contestation between the United States and China or some kind of economic shock. I think it's then that we should be very concerned about a Prabowo Subianto presidency. Jackie Baker, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Nine fourteen a.m. in Kiev, seven fourteen a.m. here in London. Now, the U.S. ambassador to NATO has warned that she doesn't expect any invitation for Ukraine to join the bloc to be forthcoming this summer. Julianne Smith was talking to journalists this week ahead of a NATO defence ministers meeting on Thursday. Well, the words come just days after the U.S. presidential hopeful Donald Trump said that he would let Russia do whatever the hell they want to any NATO member that doesn't meet spending guidelines. The impact has been felt right across the group. But how does Ukraine feel about it? Joining me now is Maria Avdeeva, who's a Ukrainian journalist and security expert. Very good morning to you, Maria. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, you're in Stockholm at the moment. So um, let's just find out, you know, what's been the effect of uh, Donald Trump's words in, in Stockholm, a country desperate trying to get into, into NATO at the moment? 
Well, absolutely. And also Sweden is the country that didn't have any war or uh, was not involved in a war for more than 200 years, the longest period in Europe. So this is a very historical moment for Sweden and it's all over in Sweden news. And also Sweden uh, realizes that uh, NATO, like a realistic scenario that NATO uh, must be prepared for Russian offensive here uh, in the north. Nordic uh, countries because uh, one of the possible scenarios is that Russia will attack Finland and go further. And this is what uh, NATO countries have to be prepared for and Sweden understands and realizes the threat coming from Russia. Now that is a, the comparable position of safety that Sweden enjoys but for Ukraine it's a very different matter isn't it to to hear the fact that Donald Trump if he gets into power in November, will take a much more different approach to uh, to the way that the the, the Russian invasion is, is is being counteracted, and it it also feels as if he's you know he's he's already tightening his grip on U.S. foreign policy. Absolutely, and uh, Ukraine was. Uh preparing to be NATO member for many years. And actually, uh, Russia started the war in 2014 when invaded uh, and occupied Crimea because Ukraine strictly stated that we want to be a part of NATO and the European Union. And this is the, the aspiration of Ukrainian people. So hearing that uh, this is not on the plate now for the next summit is very uh, disappointing. And Ukraine had already a large expectations before the previous summit last year. And of course, we will want to hear more uh, things that uh, like promising Ukraine NATO membership uh, membership this uh, year, because uh, this is not for Ukraine to become the NATO member right now at this moment. But Ukrainian people want to understand that this is where Ukraine belongs and have to understand the concrete terms and uh, conditions when uh, Ukraine will become the member. And when you hear the words of Julianne Smith saying that she doesn't expect an invitation for Ukraine to join NATO to be forthcoming this summer, does it do one of two things? Does it, A, encourage Russia to persist with its invasion? But does it demoralise and put off Ukraine? Or does it just say, this summer, no, but the door will be open one day? Well, of course, this is uh, this encourages uh, Russia because if Russia uh, would have uh, wanted to attack uh, w- one of the NATO countries, they would have already did this before. So, because all this speaking about not provoking Russia is just nonsense, because Putin does whatever he wants and whatever he is allowed to do. So sooner or later, uh, Russia will go further if we do not stop Russia here now. So this is the situation on the ground. And Ukrainians, uh, they uh, want to get more aid because the situation on the battlefield, which many experts describe as a stalemate, is not a stalemate. Russia is attacking along the entire front line. And the situation is very difficult. Russian troops are now in an offensive, uh, attacking in many directions. And Ukraine direly needs that help, the aid packages, and also uh, membership will allow 
allow Ukraine to feel more secured. So not having this support, uh, this is uh, critical uh, for Ukraine and people uh, on the ground, they uh, want to see and hear signs that still the Western support is with Ukraine and Ukraine will not be abandoned one-on-one -on -one with, NATO, with uh, Russia. Tell us a little bit more, therefore, about the reaction um, in Ukraine to the fact that funding for Ukraine has made it through the Senate in Washington, but getting it through the House is going to be much, much trickier, uh, given the fact the Republicans have such a tight grip on what they want is to be a, a, a domestic issue about Mexico, which to be resolved before they'll release money for, for Ukraine. Oh, absolutely. And people here were waiting for this aid package uh, back in November last year. So it's long, long overdue. And uh, this is uh, this aid is uh, as critical as you cannot even imagine. And it's hard to describe because Ukraine is running out uh, of ammunition on the battlefields. And some units say they just don't have anything to fight with. So uh, and seeing that the aid package is now the uh, point or the issue of a, a internal political debate is something you, it's hardly uh, imaginable because uh, also because of the fact that Putin many times stated that he is not in the war with Ukraine, he is in war with NATO and he sees the United States as his uh, foremost uh, uh, enemy and he wants to uh, to have some success in Ukraine to show the United States that Russia is a power that is comparable. And this is why the people and senators and whoever is responsible for making this decision, they have to understand that uh, Russia is now will be going further. And uh, the, like, let's stop Russia now and give this aid and give the weapons to the soldiers who will fight Russia on the ground of Ukraine and before Russia goes to other countries. Is there any sense of reassurance, though, when you see the likes of the Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk going on a tour this week of Germany, France, then to Brussels and then to Kiev, that Europe is now becoming a little bit more, well, it feels a little bit more together when it comes to its approach to Ukraine? Yes, because Europe feels uh, very, uh, like, understands clearly the threat coming from Russia. And when at the beginning of the invasion, uh, it was possibly not the uh, unified approach. Now uh, it's clearly that uh, Russia wants to go further. They can attack Moldova, which is a not NATO member. They can attack Poland. They can attack Baltic states. And this is a real scenario, not something that is, you know, in the uh, imaginable scenarios of the experts. So this is why especially countries that are neighboring with Russia see the threat as real. And Germany, a German defense minister has actually stated that Germany is prepared uh, for the possible uh, war with Russia. Russia because uh, Russia can attack NATO country in several years. But actually, this might happen not in several years, because I don't know if uh, with this kind of support uh, or lack of support uh, coming from the United States, if Ukraine will be able to like, continue fighting for several more years without that help. Maria Avdeeva, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme, we discuss the EU-Mercosur trade deal, the US cabin crew protests and... Let me take my glass off. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. Don't help 
That's Yoko Ono. We head to the exhibition Yoko Ono Music of the Mind at uh, the Tate Modern in London. Stay with us on The Globalist. Joining me now in the studio is uh, Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow with the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House. He's ostensibly here to talk about the papers. Good morning, Yossi. Um, but your face is an absolute picture when you played that bit of Yoko Ono. <laughs> will you be, will be rushing to get tickets? I, I need still to digest this this song so early in the morning. It will take a little while, but like I'll go down there with you. Apparently it's very, very good. We'll hear a little bit more about it on the programme. Uh, but first, welcome back into the studio. Uh, what have you found in the papers today? So, so the, the negotiations in Cairo and the war in, 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 in Gaza, which I think is reaching this kind of crucial point after more than four months of, of, of a war that claims so many lives already, it's whether a truce can be achieved before Israel entering uh, Rafah when there are one and a half million uh, people. And, and we see here in the, the New York Times, is, is, is whether it's possible to reach its truth, a release of hostages, exchange for prisoners, more, more, more humanitarian aid. And you have right now the head of the CIA, William Barnes, is there. The, the, the Prime Minister of Qatar is in Cairo, Mr. Al-Tahani, the head of the Israeli Mossad. So they're all negotiating it, but there is no much progress. So all they say that we are in the right direction, but the question if this is the right direction, we also will yield the right result. And that's where in this situation, that's either there is a truth that might actually lead to a ceasefire long term, or we are entering to a phase in which Israel will enter Rafa, and who knows what's going to happen as a result. There is a real sense of a race against time here, isn't there? I mean, the, yeah. the, the New York Times is very much... Um, giving accounts of, of just how little road there is left for for any kind of peace deal. I mean, the pictures that are coming out that from uh, from from Gaza, from Rafa, are unbelievable in terms of the level of suffering that people are enduring. Um, and then you go to the, the uh, you know, these very large, very beautifully ornate rooms where there are discussions taking place. The good thing is, is that these negotiations, I think it's the head of CIA, the head of Mossad, the prime minister of Qatar, and Egyptian officials, and now lower-level officials are taking yeah. uh, are taking part in these talks. The talks have been extended. Um, you say there's not great hope, but there is a, there is some sort of need for positivity here, surely. Yeah, the good thing, as long as they negotiate, there is chance. And I think it's not a bad thing, it's low-level, because the low-level, when we talk about level, there's the people that deal with the details. And the devil is in the details in this kind of situation. So if they come with kind of resolving... You know, so a lot of circles there. It that that's 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 useful because, as you meant, there are one and a half million Palestinians camp right now in Rafa, six times more than on October seven. There is no plan as yet to evacuate them in case of, of 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 a military operation, and then can lead to a disaster. And also in terms of the hostages, we don't know how many of them are still alive, and what happens if there is. A, a military operation. And indeed there is um, involvement from the international community as well. Mm. I mean, the, the New York Times is doing a very long sort of documenting of, yeah. of, of step by step. South Africa is asking the UN's top court again to act against Israel's yeah. plans for Rafa. We have France imposing sanctions on Israeli settlers on the West yeah. Bank. The international community is, is now pushing in, in, in one direction, well more and more in one direction, isn't it? 
There is always see what happened with the sanction, for instance, it's France, it's the United States, the UK, uh, too, imposed on, on Monday sanctions, is to try to look at the bigger picture, not only Gaza, West Bank as well, and maybe, maybe at last, and we discussed it so many times on this program, is there is, they're looking that without a political solution, you're going to be in the same situation time and again, so there is a lot of activity. My only hope that's when there is a ceasefire, they won't forget all about it and think, oh, this is fine now. We forget about the big picture and the need to reach a, a comprehensive peace agreement. Um, let's see how this is now trickling down into domestic politics. Um, a, uh, a Labour candidate has been suspended over comments mm. criticising Israel. Um, there is a by-election in the, in the Lancashire town of Rochdale, yes. not the most prosperous of places on earth. And Rochdale is left scratching its head while why a Labour stronghold, a left-wing Labour stronghold, is suddenly finding itself in a mess because of something that's happening a couple of thousand miles ago. Was, I, I listened to an interview with a woman in the street yesterday in Rochdale who said, I, I get this thing in Gaza, but what's it got to do with Rochdale? And it's, she, she's got quite a big point here, hasn't she? But it sort of explodes, it sort of explains just how complicated this is for the rest of the world to fathom. Yeah, Rochdale should be a walk in the park for Labour to win. However, as all the issues that is still lingering from the Corbyn era of anti-Semitism in, 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 in Labour, every, every such an expression, it was not just criticism of Israel. I must admit, because the second Labour candidate, as we see here in the Independent, was, was, was suspended as well, uh, uh, Graham Jones. And it's not only criticism of Israel, I think we are... It's quite we are, strongly we, worded, isn't we, it? We are, we are used to... It's for someone that is supposed to be in, in, in a short time a member of parliament spreading conspiracy theories, lacking judgment and talking about the Israel deliberately didn't defend itself on October 7, basically allowing this atrocity. This is one. Uh, Graham Jones used a language that I won't repeat live on radio uh, uh, about any, anything, let alone other countries. It's they can express themselves in a way that's created discourse and discussion which is a bit more intelligent about such a complex issue. I think for me this is part of the problem. MPs shouldn't spread conspiracy theories or using a language that will incite and instead of it come a situation that already is explosive. It's immensely destabilizing internally in the unit in the UK. Whereas, that, meanwhile, that lady in Rochdale is still none the right wiser. Um, let's move to a story in the Financial Times about NATO members will hit their spending target this year. Um, possibly the timing of this of this news comes with with Trump's other fruity comments about what he will let Russia do, uh, or what he would sorry encourage Russia to do. Um, were these countries not to hit their spending targets. I mean, this is a sense, isn't it, that that NATO members are anticipating a potential Trump win this year, yeah. aren't they? They do. And, and, and to be fair, there is something that Trump actually is, 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 is correct about it. The United States is spending use part of its GDP on, on, on security and also for European security. And, 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 and as a NATO, leading NATO at the same time, 
Europe for a long while still enjoying the end of the Cold War dividend, which is better to invest in their welfare, cutting taxes instead of in, uh, spending on security. While security threats are going, we saw it with Ukraine, we saw it now with the Middle East. So in this sense, he's right. The way he's, 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 he put it is, is always, and someone described it as unhinged, uh, is when, when he's actually encouraging Russia uh, to attack other members of NATO, forget that there is a kind of a clause in, the, in NATO that, that, that says that in this case the United States will have actually defend these very countries that encourage Russia to attack in case they don't pay their 2%. Reality is 18 countries out of the 31 already reached the 2%. Poland, for instance, is on actually part of the GDP higher than spend on defense than the United States. So it's in the right direction. So, you know, there are not ma many, you know, silver linings thinking about a second Trump presidency, but maybe spending more on security is one of, of them. Finally, Yossi, we've got mere seconds to talk about a man who's, lock, who's going to lock a lot of very beautiful art up in a large box and will destroy it if, if Julian Assange dies in prison. This is, people are getting quite fraught about this. Yeah, I, I, I think we are in an age that we've had a kind of huge gestures and antiques. No one pays attention. You need to find your, your niche. So here is uh, Andrei Molotkin. I hope I pronounce his name right. A Russian. I don't, I don't think he's that bothered, Yossi. He's got a large <laughs> amount of Picassos in a box and has some corrosive Yeah, substance. but he's about to destroy them in case of Julian Assange. He's uh, going to die in prison. Julian Assange in some sort of prison, either in the Ecuadorian embassy or right now in Balmarsh for, for five years before forget about it. And if he's extradited to the United States, he might spend 175 years, consider life expectancies around <laughs> 80. And he said, so it's about freedom of speech. But what happened to this wonderful Rembrandt, uh, Andy Warhol and Picasso, in case they actually extradite uh, Assange to, to the United States? But hey, sometimes to achieve freedom of speech, maybe you have to sacrifice some heart. I don't know. I wish I could care a little bit more. Yossi <laughs> Meckelberg, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. The time here in London is 7.33. A quick look at the news. Democratic former Congressman Tom Suozzi has won a special U.S. House of Representatives election in New York. The seat became available after the House expelled the Republican George Santos over allegations of corruption, fraud and lying. South Africa has made an urgent request to the International Court of Justice to consider whether Israel's plan for a full-scale military offensive in Rafah requires extra protection for Palestinians seeking shelter there. The demand came as a meeting involving the CIA head, the chief of Israel's spy agency, the Prime Minister of Qatar and Egyptian officials met in Cairo to discuss a potential truce in Gaza. Estonia has warned that Russia is preparing for a military confrontation with the West within the next decade. The Estonian Foreign Intelligence Service said Moscow could be deterred, however, by a big enough counter-build-up of armed forces. And Paris's famous booksellers have won the right to remain by the River Seine during this summer's Olympics. Hundreds of the so-called bouquinistes were told that their stalls would be temporarily removed, a move the head of Paris Booksellers Association had compared to a tooth extraction. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
8.34 in Paris. Now, let's hear now the latest on moves to create a free trade agreement between the European Union and the South American alliance Mercosur. It's emerged that a deal is unlikely to happen before the European elections this summer. So let's cross to Paris to get the latest on this with Paul Messad, who's an energy and climate journalist at the European news website Euractiv. A very good morning to you, Paul. Good morning. Um, just explain to us what the EU-Mercosur trade agreement is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the agreement between the EU and Mercosur, uh, if it's concluded, is quite simply the biggest free trade agreement in history. Just to explain, Mercosur is an economic bloc launched in the early uh, 90s between Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, Uruguay and Venezuela. Uh, now Venezuela was suspended uh, while Bolivia was approved to join uh, the Mercosur in 2023. Uh, Negotiations on the agreement were launched in uh, the end of the last century. Uh, at the end of the last uh, century, the aim was to reduce custom barriers for trade involving something like uh, 780 million people and something like uh, 120 billion worth of goods and services at, uh, per year. Uh, in particular, products such as meats from Brazil and cars from Germany. Uh, that is why we, the agreement nickname is uh, Car for Co Agreement. So we have this the Car for Co Agreement that seems, as you describe, a perfectly sensible and good idea. So why have the negotiations been halted? Um, they were halted at the beginning of February uh, for the last uh, one halted. Uh, the reason is a little unclear, in fact. Uh, on the one hand, one hand, uh, France, which is against the agreement as it stands, uh, claims that its political clout helped to halt the negotiations that were underway between the European Commission and the Mercosur authorities. On the other hand, uh, the European Commission say that uh, the negotiations were halted for reasons that do not come under France's uh, opposition. This is like a fool's game, you know. Uh, in reality, the European Commission declared a few days ago uh, that the conditions of the agreement were not suitable. They are uh, the same conditions that do not suit France and other member states opposed to the agreement, such as the uh, Netherlands, Austria and Belgium. Uh, it is just important to know that the European Commission has exclusive competence for negotiating the commercial part of free trade agreements. Uh, as a result, France, Netherlands, Austria or Belgium are not alone in being able to oppose the agreement, except on a political way, you know, uh, to be uh, simple, these countries do not have a veto. So you have this, this issue that you have the European Commission, which is doing the negotiating on behalf of the European Union, but individual countries are objecting to them. Um, at the moment, one of the loudest voices against the agreement is the French President Emmanuel Macron. Why is that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the French president is against the current state of the agreement because uh, it contains no mirror clauses. Uh, mirror clauses are reciprocity clauses uh, that require the same social and environment, environmental rules to be applied on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, in this way, uh, French agriculture, for example, uh, will be less uh, penalized by import of product from Brazilian agriculture. Uh, this is a highly sensitive issue, you know. Uh, the light, latest uh, demonstration by farmers across Europe in recent weeks bear witness to, uh, to this. Um, Emmanuel Macron has opposed to the agreement as it stands since uh, 2019, uh, after the political conclusion of an agreement with Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, the French diplomatic services asked to remain vigilant about uh, about his uh, commitments on the environment and the defense of indigenous people. 
which were now uh, known to be his uh, strong points. Uh, the far-right president disappointed the French president when it came to taking action against the forest fire that ravaged the Amazon the same year. Uh, this is uh, the political reason why France began to oppose uh, the agreement. Paul Massad from Euroactive in Paris, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Cabin crews in both the United Kingdom and US have been protesting across 30 major airports. They've been demanding higher wages, kinder scheduling and more security in their retirement. Well, the aviation analyst Sally Gethin joins me now in the studio. Good morning, Sally. So just explain the co- the, a little bit about this. I've said this is a strike, but this is not a, an all-out protest, is it? It can't be. So it's a protest rather than a strike. And uh, this is significant because in the United States... Uh, Airline workers are not allowed to go on strike. They have to seek the permission of the federal government to go ahead. So um, at this stage, it's uh, a a day of protest, um, which was uh, yesterday. And uh, 100,000 flight attendants, an estimated 100,000, joined this uh, worldwide Day of action for flight attendants, and they picketed uh, the major thirty major airports, uh, and they they come from around twenty four different airlines, and really it affected flight attendants across five continents. So it really um, was worldwide. Now, why are they protesting, and why is it significant? Well, they've never really marshaled their resources um, before together collaboratively. This is unusual. Normally, it's done um, airline to airline. And uh, things have reached ahead recently because we all know flight attendants are really exposed to higher risk than many other airline employees. So they had to deal with exposure to the virus during the pandemic. And there's been a lot of unruly behaviour on US airlines um, especially, but this is also a global phenomenon and they have to deal with that. And then also there are safety issues like the situation with Alaska Airlines recently and they don't feel that they really are being remunerated enough, not like pilots, which tend to have more success with their contract negotiations. So the the effect on on the the you know the, the aviation sector yesterday was what I mean to have so many pickets is is one thing, but did it actually you know have any kind of real effect in terms of planes taking off? destinations being reached? Really, the impact was invisibility and um, the hashtag flight attendants fight back um, uh, was trending on X, Twitter X, and there were many scenes of a uh, very loud, voluble protest within terminal buildings at uh, some of those major airports and also um, orderly but quite vocal protests outside those airports, which would have presented disruption to arriving passengers in particular. So, and that was the aim. It really is driven in many ways by equality, gender equality as well, because they're complaining of legacy sexism by airline bosses in the industry. And they were inspired, they say, by 
the women's protests across all sectors in Iceland in October last year. So there's a sort of an awakening, if you like, that basically this is not fair and it discriminates against women in particular because they make up the majority of flight attendants. How is this going to be resolved? Because they can't strike in the way that perhaps they want to. You mentioned the fact that there is a concerted, unified effort, though, now by, by cabin crew. Um, they can stri- they, they, it has to go through certain processes to be authorised to be able to go ahead and strike. So it's not that strikes are ruled out completely. It's just that, you know, a mass uh, strike would be... Um, would be prohibited or very, very difficult to organise. Um, there are so-called red-hot um, contract negotiations going on at specific airlines, for example, at Alaska, United, American, Southwest and Frontier. So this comes at a good time for those um, in the in the minds of the protesters by the flight attendants because it, it you know, concentrates the minds of the airline bosses uh, they are. It is quite confrontational in the sense that many of the attacks or criticisms of flight attendants against their employees is corporate greed. Now, since the pandemic, many airlines have enjoyed um, higher profits, and Alaska, in particular, um, is is uh, in the process of trying to acquire Hawaiian Airlines. And so, flight attendants in situations like that are saying, "Well, you've got money to, you know, to splash the cash on acquisitions, but." You can't give us a fair a fair wage. And also I should add that there's a particular thorny issue about the hours because flight attendants, surprisingly enough, do not get paid while they're boarding passengers um, or even the time they, they spend waiting around, you know, stopovers at airports. They are only paid starting from the moment the aircraft closes the doors. So once everybody has boarded. So that leaves them vastly out of pocket in many in many ways. Sally Gethin, thank you so much for joining us as ever on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Here in London, let's talk business now. On The Globalist, Isabel Hamilton is a senior reporter at The Daily Upside and joins me now. Welcome back, Isabel. Good morning to you. Good morning. So let's talk about Jeff Bezos. He's kept his head quite low, but he seems to be quietly selling off stocks in Amazon. Yeah, this past week has been an absolute bonanza for him. He sold off about $4 billion worth in shares. Uh, He still has about 9% of the company under control, so that's nice. But uh, yeah, he's really been on a bit of a spree. Do we know why? We don't know why. There's a number of reasons he could be selling off this these shares. Uh, he's got a couple of other ventures. He's got his Earth Fund, which is his philanthropic venture. He's got Blue Origin, which is his space exploration company that's a competitor with um, Elon Musk's SpaceX, but it has to be said it's quite far behind SpaceX. So that could possibly use a little cash injection. And he's also the owner of the Washington Post, um, which cut about 240 jobs last year. The issue is, though, is that when you see Jeff Bezos actually offloading shares of Amazon, does that, you're talking about the other, you know, the other investments he may wish to funnel the money into, but what does that say about the confidence that he has in Amazon? 
I wouldn't say it necessarily says he has very little confidence in Amazon. I think it's very hard to kind of get an insight into exactly what a man like Jeff Bezos, who has unfathomable, unfathomable amounts of money, wants money for, if that makes sense. Like the things that he decides to splash out on are so out of this world compared to what the rest of us can imagine. Um, I don't think it necessarily says that he thinks the value of Amazon is going to dip. So we're not all going to panic. Um, let's move to uh, Disney. Uh, we moment, we were discussing a few minutes ago about cabin crew trying to sort of get their act together to to demand better pay, better uh, scheduling and, and better uh, prospects in retirement. Um, there is a sense, well, there's, it's in, in Disney, or rather in Disneyland in particular, um, the people who perform, who dress up as the likes of Mickey Mouse and Cinderella, what have you, they are trying to come together as well. Yeah, so this is about, I think, 1,700 workers in Disneyland, California, specifically, like you said, the people who are in the Mickey Mouse costumes, the Cinderella costumes, the ones who have to completely stay in character and run all over the park. And they want to unionize. It's worth noting that Disney's theme parks are already quite densely unionized. Uh, Most of the 35,000 workers at that particular resort are in a union already. It's just that these people aren't and they are trying to unionize with a actors union. And I think they want better pay as well. But also health and safety is quite high on their list uh, ever since, you know, pandemic restrictions sort of eased and they can interact more with the people in the parks. I think they want slightly stricter rules about things like sanitizing the costumes, stuff like that. And it is an issue. It's sort of the very much day to day stuff that they're cross about. I mean, you mentioned the, the sanitized costumes, but they just want their costumes to be cleaner. You know, they're saying we really don't want to get in a fight with management. We think we can absolutely work with them. It's not quite as combative as you sometimes see during union campaigns. For example, when there's been union campaigns at Amazon, sometimes the statements can be a lot fierier. This is very much, no, we just want to, you know, join the rest of our co-workers and join a union. That's what happens when you work for the Magical Kingdom. Um, finally, let's talk about uh, the 14th of February. Uh, has not been has not escaped many people's attention that it's Valentine's Day. Um, cost of living is also something that people are noticing. And there's a perfect storm quite literally when it comes to if you want to buy your loved one a box of chocolates it's got, you're going to have to dip a bit further into your pocket today yeah unfortunately el nino uh, has caused some pretty harsh conditions in the ivory coast and ghana and those two countries produce about two-thirds of the globe's cocoa and i think the harvest is looking at something like a 25 percent drop which of course has sent prices up to record highs and that you know increase in the raw goods cost has of course been passed through the retailers and chocolate is looking a lot more expensive than it was i think that so i saw some quotes from the national confections association in the us they're not that bothered they think that people will still splash out on valentine's day because chocolates you know an affordable luxury they will still get that box of chocolates for their loved ones. It is. It goes. It, it keys massively into the idea of the lipstick index, doesn't it? That when you are in recession or you're or you're a bit a bit tight in the pocket, there is something such as chocolate, which can uh, which you can dip your, which you can buy. Yeah, they did a survey. This association, ninety-two percent of the Americans they surveyed said they were planning on buying chocolate for Valentine's Day. So I think they really don't have to worry. Perhaps as the year goes on, they could start to worry a bit more. But uh, certainly for today, they're sitting pretty. Who's being affected the most by this? I mean, is it the larger producers or the smaller producers who who are feeling the squeeze? I think everyone's feeling the squeeze. Uh, Hershey's gave a warning a couple of days ago that they were going to have to start, you know, raising prices and so on and so forth. 
I really don't think anyone's going to get away from this. Um, so what is the sort of like the long term prospect of this? Because you, you can change a recipe in chocolate, can't you, to, to put fewer cocoa solids in there? Are we, are, we, are we looking at a future when actually we will have to pay more for much better chocolate uh, because we'll be, we'll be putting more stuff in the rest? I think it's really hard to say. Um, of course, there is always a sort of the uh, shrinkflation, as people, some people call it, is always sort of uh, an option to brands. But, you know, this is one bad harvest. They may just wait it out and see if next year is better. Isabel Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Finally today, a celebration of Yoko Ono, the trailblazer of early conceptual performance art, in addition to being a musician and an activist for world peace. She developed her practice in the US, Japan and the UK, and her ideas uh, are often expressed in poetic, humorous and radical ways. Well, Yoko Ono, Music of the Mind, is now on show at London's Tate Modern. It is Britain's largest exhibition celebrating moments in Ono's career from the mid-1950s to the present day, and it includes her years in London, where she met her her future husband and longtime collaborator, John Lennon. On Monocle's Robert Bound went down to the exhibition to hear from the curator, Juliet Bingham. Hello? This is Yoko. So Music of the Mind was the name of a talk that she gave in the States in 1966 and then also used the same title for a series of performances and events in London and Liverpool. And the idea of Music of the Mind was really to stimulate the imagination. And that's very much what Yoko Ono was doing with her groundbreaking instructions, or basically do-it-yourself art scores. So we wanted to immediately sow that seed which she herself talks about a lot, the power of the imagination. She's referred to her work as, all all my work is a form of wishing. So we really wanted to embed that, that it's actually about participation of the viewer, and it's both in your mind, but also participatory works that you can actively engage in. So they really underpin the exhibition, and her instructions form a kind of backbone on your journey around the show. So you're invited to step on a painting, to climb inside a bag and make sculptural forms, to shake hands through a canvas, to put your shadows together, to hammer a nail, and also to play a game of chess, only white pieces on a white chessboard. It's a way into the work which has a certain humour to it, but white chess set, for example, is also underpinned by the idea that instead of a combatant position, that we can actually collaborate together. So it really feeds into her ongoing campaign for peace. And so much of the works, as you said, Juliet, are finished by the viewer, as it were. They are completed by the viewer. This was in the early 1960s. This kind of hyper-conceptual stuff was, even then, was rare on the ground. And it was very much the era for that stuff, you might, you might say. How ahead of her time, I wonder, do you judge Yoko Ono's work in that period particularly? And how shocking was it to the world? seemed to get up the world's nose very sadly <laughs> at that time. And I wonder, I wonder how, whether that was just being before her time. Well, I think she was an incredibly generous artist. Mm. She came to New York only age 23. She eloped there with Toshi Ishiyanagi. And then age 27, she rented a loft apartment, Chamber Street Loft Series, where she invited artists, musicians, performers to come and express themselves and to really develop their practices. She developed this form, a kind of art score, initially showing paintings and whispering the instruction for the paintings to visitors who came to the show. 
that was in 1961 in New York, and then a year later, showing only the texts, just texts only, in her show in Japan. So it was a really big conceptual shift, and very important in the beginnings of conceptual art. She was also very close friends with George Matunius, who of course went on to establish the very loose international collective, the Fluxus Movement, and a lot of the ways that Ono worked were really foundational to to that flowering um, collective. So I think, yeah, she's incredibly innovative. Her practice is incredibly ahead of its time. And it's part and parcel of the success of this show, actually, people finishing those works, people interacting, as you've said, with the the list of some of these seminal works, which absolutely require the viewer and the the participant, I suppose. Is that a part, a sign of the success of it, that there's a bit of noise in, in this show, that there is, yeah, there's a lot of movement and there's a lot of people getting involved without just their minds? Absolutely. And I think it's also showing documentary footage for example of her work cut piece so she first performed that in Tokyo and Kyoto in 1964 and that's a really revolutionary work because she was kind of inverting the role of artist and performer and she referred to it as like letting go of artist ego she sits motionless on the stage wearing her best outfit with a pair of scissors in front of her and the invitation is for members of the public to come and take cut off pieces of her clothing and keep take a keepsake so she referred to it very much as a form of giving and taking and it's a very important work in terms of this reversal of like role of artist and audience so many of the works in the exhibition that we are able to realize are an invitation for people to directly participate yeah and just finally there are the perhaps uninitiated think of Yoko Ono's work and feel that it's very it's ideas heavy and artifact light it seems to suit the era that we're in very comfortably actually I wonder what you think of that whether it's it sits very comfortably in 2024 in London or a major capital city of the world where her prophecy of peace and you know giving things away seems to if not becoming true be a desire for a new generation of people that might be visiting Tate Modern for example so I think what, without wanting to put ideas and words in your mouth well, no, but I think what's really interesting about Ono's work the openness the invitation to participate those ideas really underpin a lot of what Tate Modern is about and actually we want to be an open forum we want people to feel comfortable we want them to participate we want to you know to pr- promote a kind of collective action and that really underpins a lot of her work And Yoko Ono, Music of the Mind, uh, begins tomorrow at Tate Modern, runs until September this year. Uh, That was Juliet Bingham talking to Robert Bound. Uh, You can listen to Monocle on Culture on Monday for more on Yoko Ono's work. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Chris Chermack and Carlotta Ribello. Our researcher is Noma Ekwe and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. After the headlines, more music on the way. I'll be back with a briefing at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>